Turning Point, Episode 8, Glenn Murray, Then and Now. With Glenn Murray coming down in 3, 2, and in 1. What's your drink of choice here? My drink of choice here is a London Fog, and I that's my fall drink. It's sort of like... You're not into the pumpkin spice anything, are no, you? No, this is as close as I get to that, I think. Just London Fog, yeah. Kind of fits, you know? All these years later, the exit interview from almost 20 years ago, and it was on the telephone. You were at University of Toronto. What have you learned since those U of T days? His detractors say he's a backroom bully. He doesn't listen. It's his way or the highway. His supporters argue as mayor he promoted downtown redevelopment and helped place the cause of cities on the national agenda. He stepped down as mayor of Winnipeg to run in the federal election. He lost, and then he hit the highway. Our number six CJOB Manitoba newsmaker of 2004, Glenn Murray. You almost have to go to what we jokingly refer to as sort of a, a temporary exile from the city afterwards. And what are you doing in exile now? <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm having a great time. I'm at University of Toronto. I'm uh, assigned to the faculties of architecture, arts, and science, and I actually have law in the Rotman School added to my teaching portfolio in January, and that's been exciting. I'm, I'm at Massey College, which is the graduate school here, so I'm meeting some very bright young PhD students and spending quite a bit of time with them. And uh, I'm, I'm doing a lot of consulting work right now uh, with uh, different, different um, major private firms, mostly around urban public policy, environmental legislation, culture, some economic development projects. So it's been a very busy, busy, diverse number of challenges since I left. In politics, it's all about timing. Were you the right politician at the right time for the city of Winnipeg? Or in many ways, were you ahead of your time? I don't know. uh, That's an interesting question. Um, I I would probably be the last person who could probably answer it. I, I think that Winnipeg... When I was mayor, I mean, we did some phenomenal things. We cut the entire debt in half. The city's finances and credit rating is the best it's ever been. Um, we, under Susan Thompson and myself, we took the city from 11,000 to 8,000 staff. Uh, our credit rating is AA uh, plus. So it's, uh, I mean, it was a phenomenal financial turnaround. I think people, when I left office, were feeling excited about the, the future of the city. I think that continues to that day. Um, I, a lot of the stuff we're trying to do environmentally, uh, you know, user-paid garbage and rapid transit, a lot of those things that I think are commonplace in most other Canadian cities right now. As a matter of fact, I think almost every other major city in Canada either has done those things or is doing those things. So, I, I mean, I think that um, some of the ideas that we introduced that were pretty standard are probably, were probably a little too controversial for some folks. But, you know, that, I think what leadership is about offering things that aren't always, uh, that, that raise the bar a bit, that push the envelope a bit. Uh, and uh, and so, no, I, and I, I think that, I mean, it's a, I, what it takes a strong tough, uh, brave city. It, it, it faces harsh weather. It's isolated. Uh, I, I think we as Winnipeggers have created stuff for ourselves that are more self-reliant maybe than many other communities. And we've got a little bit more of an edge, which is what I've always really appreciated about it. No, no one ever calls us wimps. I've learned a lot about who I am, what I do well, what I don't do well. I've learned a lot of late about situations I work well in and ones that I don't, to be quite frank. Um, And the kind of culture of organizations in cities and why I have 
really strong gifts to be a mayor. And I can go through those. Um, and what I need to do in my life to feel like I'm making a difference and have realized that from now to the day I die, the most important thing in my life is, is three things. My health, my friends and the people I love and I'm blessed with, and that when I put my, take my last breath, I can actually look back and measure my life by two things. The difference I made in the world and the love I left behind in other people's lives. And being a young gay kid, Growing up in the you know the time when we were really marginalized, got beaten up, and then my teens and in my twenties through the AIDS pandemic, losing forty three friends. That was, you know, I didn't even know what the word trauma was back then. But that that was a personal growth, change your life kind of thing. And it was also later years realized it was a pretty traumatizing experience. You know, having you know living with losing that many people around you, and then living with the anticipation that most of the rest were in the process of dying. And, and, and that changed my life because it forced me to confront my own mortality and realize that life was short and people are enigmatic. We're both uh, very strong and resilient and brilliant and have these incredible brains and imaginations, but our bodies are also incredibly fragile and could be felled by a small microorganism. It's, it's, it's these contradictions that make life so wonderfully exciting and sometimes tragic. Today I'm here to declare my candidacy for the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party and the Premiership of Glenn Murray has had a pretty good run in elective politics, from mayor of Winnipeg in 1998 to running for parliament in 2004, to Ontario cabinet minister in 2010, to a run for Ontario liberal leader in 2013. He left Queen's Park three years ago, but obviously he feels he still has an unfulfilled political mission because he's announced he's seeking the leadership of the Green Party of Canada trying to replace Elizabeth May. And Glenn Murray joins us now from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, Mr. Murray, it is good to see you again. Let's start with the obvious question. I thought you were a liberal. Now you're running for the leadership of the Greens. How come? Yeah, I, I'm sure Tom Mulcair and Bob Ray were asked that question. <laughs> when, <laughs> when they, they left And I think there's some evidence today that by geography, by time, by level of government, uh, parties have represented different things. And even people who are in the middle of the life of parties uh, in, in any sense of the word you want to take that with, um, when they rise, they, they find uh, an alignment to a different party. And, you know, if you're someone like me uh, who worked very closely with Kathleen Wynne, uh, Wynne and Dalton McGinty uh, on everything from cap and trade and zero waste to, uh, to the universal uh, minimum income project or what we call a guaranteed livable uh, income in the Green Party, there's a very strong alignment between uh, what I've always been working on as a mayor uh, as an Ontario cabinet minister uh, with where the Greens are at now. There is no other party that I feel so much in common with or so trusting of and so comfortable with the values and the process as well as the substance. So it's kind of a natural fit, I think, for me at this point and very consistent with most of my priorities throughout my public life. Does Winnipeg need Glenn Murray more than Glenn Murray needs Winnipeg? And I think you not only want this job, you need this job because you've got something to prove to yourself as well. Am I wrong in that? Yes. <laughs> it's so much more simple than that. It's, if you actually look at what's under all of that, um, I've always been doing the same work, regardless of the job. And what the job is, is always less important than the work I'm doing. So when I, when I ran federally, I was not enamored or, you know, caught up in the idea. I mean, I was a little hesitant because 
and after I, I'll, I'll tell you the story in a sec, but you know, going to Ottawa and being an MP compared to being a mayor did not feel like a step up, if you know what I mean, in, 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 my, in my ability to create change, except for one thing. It was very situational. It was Paul Martin, and it was a government that was going to start with gas tax, which they did, Two weeks after I announced I was running for them, they just did the deal. And this long-term commitment to, to change the way that Canada works so cities were real entities and we have enough of our own revenue, a.k.a. the provincial sales tax, just get those revenues once and for all because it, it just frustrates me. I go to Minneapolis, Minneapolis sales tax property, all these U.S. cities that I, I spent when I was invited, because I, I was invited by the State Department to go and hang out with mayors there. like. In so many cities, these are never issues. And in Canadian cities, it's terrible. And in Winnipeg, it's, it's worse because, quite frankly, I mean, what's the big issue in this election? Not, not that these candidates all don't have a variety of good ideas and do want to do some worthy things. The big challenge they have is no one can figure out where the money's coming to pay for all of these things, right? And that's not true in most municipal elections. This, we don't realize how bizarrely odd it was. So that was one thing that I wanted to fix. And then when I was in Toronto, I, I was at U of T to build a city center there, CEO of the Canadian Urban Institute, doing all those things. Climate change being the biggest challenge facing us. Green Party, that made sense. Um, you know, Pemina was really about... You know, I really wanted to change agent. I thought, here's, here's the organization that can bridge the city climate change kind of thing. Um, all of those things were really doing the same kind of thing. And I was learning about myself, about how I fit into each of those situations. Most of them really well, one not. Um, but I learned, you know, I always learn more by the mistakes I make than the successes I have. Mr. Murray. Last Friday at a news conference regarding your sudden departure from the Pemity Institute in 2018, you said there was great change in your private life at the time and quote, it is clear that I allowed that pressure to spill over into my work life. You went on to say, quote, that my leadership style and the way I worked was not a good fit with the culture of the organization. Mr. Murray, what is that leadership style? And if it didn't fit with the Pemity Institute, how would it fit with the city of Winnipeg in 2022? I think people in Winnipeg know me very well. Uh, they saw me in office for 15 years. They saw me working with Premier Philman and Premier Dewar hand in glove. Positive relationships. I committed at the beginning that I would never have public fights with a Premier, and I never did. Rather than yelling at each other, which is the case before and after, Premier Philman and Premier Dewar and I are good friends. I worked very well with my council. There wasn't an on-EPC, off-EPC debate. There were, we usually got 12 votes. I lost one vote over Murray EPC. went on for another minute. And I'm not sure you answered the question, sir. I'm talking about temperament, the way you deal with relationships, and let's specifically talk about staff. You said you never had any public fights with anybody. But have you had those private staffs? And what have you learned from that experience at the Pemina Institute that in 2022 that you would apply now? Mr. Murray, I've known you for 30 years. And I think it's important that you tell Winnipeggers that maybe you've changed. Maybe that was a one-off at Pemina. No, you know, I probably have one of the longest careers and I've been CEO of private companies and public companies and not everyone is a good fit. You take responsibility, which I have, for mistakes that you make. Um, you also know when you come and go and you work with people through that process. If you look at my 40-year career, uh, it's been pretty stellar. I've built a cap-and-trade system. Everything I've ever done has depended on human relationships. 
Now, Winnipeggers know me well. I've been, you know, when I was mayor, I was out every night. I go to three or four events. I work 16-hour days, 14-hour days, seven days a week. I have dealt with more crisis. My son committed suicide a few years ago. Yes, I've gone through some things. Things that many people can't handle. I lost my son. I lost my mom. I'm tough. I don't bring my problems to work, but it doesn't mean that every job I've had in my life is a good fit or there aren't people there that are going to be unhappy with change. I came in to create significant change in an organization that clearly didn't want it. I didn't stick around. I respectfully left, mutually, and I learned some, with some humility that I'm not good at everything and that sometimes you have to not do things that you're not good at. But I am. The, I, I don't think too many people would argue that I was pretty darn hardworking, good mayor who built great relationships and changed the discussion around cities, not just in Winnipeg, and built a pretty strong foundation for a future. Do you remember this proposal for a revised Winnipeg charter that was sort of under the New Deal? And it was the, it was the, 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 the option of less ambition, let me put it that way. It, it, it didn't have something, but it had things like a liquor tax. It had a lot of stuff. When I was at U of T, I get a call from the Premier, Premier McGinty at the time, I get called into these meetings. I'm sitting down with all these bureaucrats and the you know, political staff with the uh, urban affairs minister. And they basically said, we've got your Winnipeg Charter here. We think it's a really cool idea. Do you know that Winnipeg Charter is the charter for the city of Toronto? The city of Toronto could execute a liquor tax tomorrow. It could do all of these things. Um, so we did this thing in Winnipeg, which we did. And we went to the province and they said no. Um, but we did it here and it actually exists in Toronto. Like Toronto actually has, I think, seven to nine additional new revenue sources. So I really believe this. And, 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 and I've said this a few times. I don't think people have fully understood. Like I went to 90 people, CEOs of major trucking companies, heads of unions, you know, Chief Pegwis, Chief Dan. And I said, look, if I do this, he said, oh, you want my support? And I said, that's not, I'm not asking him, sir. I want your support on October 27th. And they all looked at me like, okay, Murray, what's going on here? I said, I need you to stand with me because the only way we're going to get something like the sales tax, I said, I'm not sure exactly what it is right now, is if there's 90 of us, if the province looks and sees every significant business leader, if you can build the coalition where the balance is so much in obviously a political win for the province, especially maybe a provincial conservative party that needs some new friends and needs to change the channel quickly in the next few months. And they can do this. And, you know, and everyone I've talked to, all my Tory friends, because there's a number of conservatives, obviously you've seen working on my campaign, they're all saying, like, no, no, no one quietly in the back channels is pushing back on me right now. No one's, no one's saying uh, that we're not, this is a no-go. What's your plan B? You always have to have a plan B. Oh, yeah, but I never let it know. I mean, Plan B coming out late in the campaign at the Winnipeg Chamber of Commerce debate. Property tax freeze made up by commercial business taxes, impact fees charged to developers, and a short-term rental tax. So $3.2 million. Yes. The combined business uh, commercial tax, how much does that get? Well, that will be blended next year because I know they want it. So, so that will be rolled in. So How many millions? How much would that raise? Yeah. About 14, 15 million. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's about, we're getting there. So that's the equivalent of the 2.33 tax increase about. Okay. And then the others come mm. out to about a uh, total of about 25, 30 million would be the range. I'm getting to where everyone else is now, but I didn't want to go there because I was trying to keep the attention on the PST. Did you make up that business commercial tax thing while you were on stage there? No. no we've been talking about it for quite a while. Really? Uh, I've been consulting with folks and folks about it for quite 
for a couple of weeks. But the court ruling on impact fees says you can't do general impact fees. But you can do them for specific projects. So if you're in Bison Run and you want Keniston, you could do it if you can make the case. So what I'm saying is, yes, bring that back, but on a specific basis. The way the way the uh, so specific impact fees. Any other taxes that we should be aware of here? No, no. That, you sure. Well, yeah. you Richard, we're now just uh, right between the Johnson Terminal and the Forks Market, and this has been a success. And it's a success because it's eyes on streets, right? And the most important thing in the downtown, the most successful downtowns, is that's got to be continuous. And if there are gaps where there are no eyes and seats, it has to be well lit, and you have to have good sight lines, uh, and you have to have a reasonable traffic flow. And part of the problem we have in the downtown is you can get from here to the Human Rights Museum, and as you get closer, you're getting into more, you know, what I would call sort of not defensible space. Sight lines aren't good. Uh, some of the designs of some of those buildings are up against black, big blank walls, and you're isolated. Um, I mean. <laughs> The, you know, the reason for a restaurant or an activity center on the uh, Esplanade Riel was not to make money, but to create that. So you know, do something like 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever the revenue is, turn it over to the commons here and let the forks run it uh, as a coffee shop and maybe a little tapas bar and put some music in the... It was meant to be an activity center. And then the city took it over and said, no, we have to make it like, treat it like it's commercial space for a restaurant. Well, that wasn't the idea. The idea was on a long bridge uh, that is pedestrians, do something that at least is sort of cost recovery that keeps eyes on streets. So a lot of this stuff has gotten lost into its intent. And then you hit the wall of parking lots. Once you hit uh, Stevenson Way, you walk basically through a sea of parking lots all the way to Badentine. And that should and that should be the most valuable and most developable land of the downtown. Sarah right Stasiak has a plan. There is about 10 developments that will go there, but it's been stuck for about 18 months now. And you go to the province, the province says you go to the city, the city says go to the province. There is a listlessness, I would suggest to you, that it needs leadership. It needs yeah. somebody that's going to stand up and be persistent. Yeah. And that's what a mayor does. Yeah, well, I went to the most important finishing school for persistence and never taking no for an answer. And I had, at that school, I had two outstanding professors uh, who I will be indebted. Professor Izzy Asper and Professor Gail Asper, who taught me very quickly in life how not to give up and how to be unrelenting. And uh, working with them on the Human Rights Museum after. You know, and you know, working with Mark Chipman on the arena, that was really hard. I mean, you know, like, I'm not sure that that many people around today that would have been able to pick up the public sector leadership part of building a downtown arena, especially on the site of the beloved Eaton's building, uh, and, and having the stamina and the, the hutzpah and the smarts and the networks to do that, or to work with them, or Waterfront Drive. I mean, you know, it was, I cannot tell you how many meetings I had with uh, engineers from public works explaining to them that we were not building a road that looked like the Disraeli Expressway. And, and, and that road, if you have to look at it, is so off the books for a traffic engineer. It, 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 I'm sure it's, I'm sure it horrifies Well, it's about getting people through the area as opposed to also trying to get people to spend some time in the yeah, area. It's and that's what you need. Street as a destination. At, at Portage and Main and so many other streets. So in 2022, we've come through this pandemic. We now have 
many organizations that have fewer employees at work. You've got the city of Winnipeg that has a policy that, you know what, we need to keep people here. We also need to um, attract people to work for the city of Winnipeg. We're going to allow you to work either permanently or semi-permanently at home. As mayor, would you say to your CAO, we have to bring our employees back downtown? Well, I think we do, and I, I think that's going to be cultural to different organizations. You know, I don't think we, I mean, one of the things I've learned in my life when you asked me, I said, organizations have culture. And one of the hardest things to change in a city, in a population, or in an organization is culture. And culture, the culture of workplaces changed. How we feel, what we want to do, how, we started organizing our lives differently. We started having a different relationship with our pets and our children. We had in-laws that came and stayed with us. We changed the way we go out and eat. I mean, it wasn't just workplace. So how is it, and it's going to change again. So how do you incent it? And I mean, one of the things that I think came out of this is that people really like the idea of erasing the walls between uh, home, work, education, entertainment. Um, and we're going to start seeing, I'm, I'm noticing because I'm a total geek about architecture books. I drive my friends crazy with the, you know, sending them videos on stuff. And this whole idea of building buildings that are not residential, that are not commercial, that are not cultural, that are all of the above, and designing places that people want to do more things like they want greenhouses, they want to grow their own food, they want to have a grocery store. But to answer the question, will there be an order or a memo from Glenn Murray, if you're mayor to the CAO, we need more employees back downtown? I I think I put an emphasis on it, Richard. But as I just said, for all of those changes, I won't repeat them, Maybe something better comes out of this. Maybe a lot of that city real estate could actually be people's homes and be some of those things. Maybe we have to look at, and maybe the city would save a lot more money if we were less of a traditional, our buildings were less in traditional employment. Maybe we should actually start to seeing if some of our employees would like to live nearer their work and start to think about some of these buildings that we own as becoming multi-purpose buildings. Yeah, it's true. It's culture and you need to, to lead by example in those ways but it's also about about pipes, about aging infrastructure, not just above the ground, but below the ground. Yeah. We're behind. We're absolutely behind in this city. The goal is to have 50% of our growth at the infill level yeah. in our neighborhoods. And that's very difficult for developers who would rather say, I can make more money in the suburbs or just outside the city of yeah. Winnipeg. But so what do you do as mayor to make sure that that happens, that 50% happens? Well, because the economics of it for the city are so different. You know, I, I, I was, they started measuring, recording the amount of pipe in the city of Winnipeg in 1941, in the middle of the Second World War. And we now have 250% more pipe per person. You know, um, we, we now have so many more kilometers of roads per person today that it is kind of, you know, expensive. And, you know, it's pretty wasteful to use, you know, 50% hundred percent more land to house a person or create a job and to use uh, two and a half times as much pipe just so you can flush your toilet doesn't work and that's the basic reality and and that's not just a suburban urban thing it's really how do we start to have a more efficient use of infrastructure and and we need to set some standards in my mind which is saying this is how much you know 
This is the amount of infrastructure and land that we're prepared to support for these different types of living, for this kind of construction. And then all of a sudden the city becomes affordable again. But we're right now so overextended that we are using so much more, so many more kilometers of roads, so many more uh, you know, kilometers of pipe and so many much more land to, to house the same population. And it's and we're not talking like density. I live in Crescentwood. I've got like I live in a three, four story walk up at the ends. There's middle class mid-size and, and large-size housing in between. Uh, it's all grid pattern streets. It's not a beautiful parks. That cost, that, I mean, the taxes we pay there are probably per square meter three times what someone was, would, would be paying in a peripheral area. And when you actually look at land coverage, there's so much more land out there that, um, you know, that, that, that's not tax-paying. Uh, we're in, the, we're in, in, a, in a more grid pattern street city like Crescentwood. You're talking about a lot less land that isn't paying taxes. So those kinds of things are, are just math. You've just got to make sure that your revenue base isn't, uh, isn't so disproportionately small to your infrastructure base that you can't afford it. Murray wants to accelerate electrifying the transit fleet. It is ambitious and costly and would require federal, provincial tax dollars, not to mention infrastructure, not just for that transit fleet, but for the grid, charging stations, your home. NFI Group, the maker of buses here and worldwide, New Flyer, headquartered here in Winnipeg. Its CEO, Paul Subri, would like Winnipeg to be a world leader in the electrification process of transit fleets. Paul Subri was probably doing cartwheels when he heard you saying that we're going to accelerate this. How do you do it and what do you envision the city of Winnipeg from getting from point A to point B in 10 years from now? Well, you know, first of all, it just um, that's why I would like the PST because then we this wouldn't be an issue. We could be so creative and do partnership. So Paul's super excited about it because uh, the Buy America policy has gone from sixty to seventy percent of content of vehicles and things they buy there. So more and more of those jobs are moving to St. Cloud, Minnesota. And I sat down with Paul and I said, like, what do we do about this? He says, design, innovation, and electrification. He said, and I, and I talked to him about this New York, this, and I said, let's do, what if we do a surface uh, uh, transit lab? Uh, where we Something that's been in the works with Red River College, University of Manitoba as well. They want to do this. They need the funding. Turn the whole frigging thing in the city into the most sophisticated, that not just for new flyer and their suppliers, and not just to bring the whole design thing, but you know, all of these companies that populate the exchange district are all into guidance systems. You've got people that are doing like parking management systems, like all of these things that are complementary and transit-oriented development design and modeling, uh, different guidance systems and guidance ways, self-guiding bus technologies, like that would be explosive. And we've gone from 5,000 people working at new flyer to about 3,500. If we bring, they bought Dennis buses, they're the biggest bus manufacturer in the world. If we brought, I want to bring the entire green climate change, smart technology, smart guidance systems, new surface materials, uh, smart buses, uh, composite materials and buses. I, and Paul's excited about this, he wants a mayor to work with who can think outside the box and do that. We're talking about the whole electric charging infrastructure. We're talking about how much money, because electric motors are so much simpler and easier and cleaner uh, and less costly, less labor costs, less parts costs. Goes back to that hydro infrastructure that they have to spend money on the city of Winnipeg because Crescentwood 
Port Rouge, some of these older neighborhoods don't have that sophisticated infrastructure we need. Yeah. And it's not just a civic issue, it's a provincial right. issue as well. And whoever's in Broadway, you've got to be standing up and saying, we've got a plan for 10 years from now because we're probably about 20 years behind. So everyone talks about buses and how much it's going to cost. And, and this is kind of ridiculous because Hamilton just got $3.4 billion to do 14 kilometers of light rail, a project that I did some advanced work on when I was at CUI on modeling what the value up with lift. If you put a rail, where would you put it? Where, 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 where would you locate tracks in Hamilton to provoke the highest level of development with the least amount of cost? Um, and that's what we need to do here on every single line we built. We need to look at where do these lines go? Because the most walkable lines, the ones that are going to get the highest ridership, are also the ones that are going to provoke the most amount of infill development along the route. But more importantly than that, this is an economic issue. This is about turning Winnipeg into the truly global center for advanced surface electrified transit. And, and we have the cluster of companies here that aren't going to stay in a stasis. They're either going to grow and we're going to move into a high design, high development area and we're going to become sort of the engineering, design, environmental, new fuels, new materials, new guidance systems, capital of the world where everyone comes to be ahead of the curve to catch up with Winnipeg or we're just going to slowly see drip, 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 more and more buses manufactured leading to the States and we're going to become sort of an increasingly secondary bus manufacturing center. And so for me, the debate has been so hard because everyone else is talking buses and I'm talking about the city, future of the city's economy. Glad Murray, always a pleasure. Great, thanks. Thank for you so very much. No. Hey, before we go. Yeah. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city to see a marching band. I've known Glenn Murray for almost 30 years. All sorts of contradictions. He's smart, passionate, driven, exhausting. He has a complicated relationship with the truth. He's a recognizable name and, if elected, will once again use all that energy to put Winnipeg at the center of a provincial and national conversation over taxation, climate, addiction, homelessness. The question is, has he learned from his mistakes or is he just trying to get to the finish line? And I still don't know whether Glenn Murray needs Winnipeg more then Winnipeg needs Glenn Murray. But even his strongest detractors from the past now embrace him. Charles Adler was against Glenn Murray. I, I hear I hear ads well, from Charles said, Adler. I ran into you for at it's St. Norbert Market. Market. And Charles was on the phone. And I, I held the phone up and you were looking at me perplexed. So what's the deal there? He uh, came back to Winnipeg and I used to tease him. He's used my head as a football for a decade at least uh, and he just said he said you know I gotta tell you like I don't think I fully appreciated it until you left and until I came back and saw what happened in between exactly how much you did for the city I did not understand the relationships you had you know I, I think he, he said I always liked you but I had a job to do and he said I am so convinced that the city needs you right now he said it's like you'll rewire the place overnight and that's what we need we need to reconnect everything get everyone excited and excited about the future of the city again and and and, and not just excited but getting all the levers reconnected so we can all work together again and he said I want to be part of that and I'll be an unsuspecting supporter of yours and he's been absolutely wonderful and 
I would never thought I would have said this, you know, 20 years ago, but Charles Adler and I have become really good friends. And uh, I've gotten to see this man's heart and his soul and his thoughtfulness. And I think he's evolved to use an Obamaism a bit on a lot of things. And uh, I find him insightful and brilliant and a great mentor and a great coach, a man of incredible experience. Found a lot more about his family life and mine. And um, yeah, I just, uh, it's kind of exciting. And every, so every time someone, and it's a lesson for me because. I just realized when you get older, you get wiser and you get more patient and you realize that what is right now and the relationships that you have right now may be radically different in 10 years because we all change and our circumstances change. So I, I get, it makes me more patient with people and it makes me less reactive to people because, you know, I, you know, I, I wish I knew, you know, someone asked me what, what's the biggest difference if you're going to be mere now, you know, 20 years later. Uh, well, you know, when you're 40 and when you're 60, it's different. I, I am so much a better person and humbled, you know, like I've realized painfully things I don't do well. And I've, and I've learned not to be so judgmental of people. And I've learned to be, I think, a lot more thoughtful and relaxed. And that the irony of that is you're more successful when you're determined if you're not aggressive. And um, that's a... Because when you're younger and you're gay and you're compensating for all of the stereotypes, you can get pretty aggressive. And uh, now I don't have to do that anymore. I'm in my body. I know myself. And I love this city. I, you know, I, I've seen the world now. And Winnipeg is the best place in the world to live. And people laugh and say that. I would not give up what we're, where we're standing here, Richard. Just this no place where you've got people, a sense of community. It's the, it's the perfect scale. It's easier to do things here. People know each other. And it's not an unpleasant familiarity. It is a remarkable place with remarkable f familiarity. And it's, it's like a little heaven. And all you, if you ever want to be grateful for living here, just try not living here for a while. For Turning Point, I'm 680 CJOB's Richard Kluche. Sometimes I get the 